says the king came in to look at the guests. That is, there was an inspection mindset that he had when he, he came. He comes to the visible church, the church on earth, and he finds that not everyone among the believers is a believer. Not everyone who claims to have faith actually has faith. And so he found one who is false and he, he casts him out. And then this introduces a uncomfortable and unsettling reality that not all of those coming into the wedding hall, into the earthly church, are truly saved. Okay, that's kind of the telling of the, the parable. Let's, let's get to what is easily, I think, the most obvious first application is the, the concern that this brings to us. Not all in the visible church are saved. First point of application, friend, hide yourself in Christ. Hide yourself in Christ. The parable functions as a warning to the New Testament church. That's what this warning is for, for those who are gathered, for those who are here. And it, and it goes like this. Don't assume that just because you're in church, you're in Christ. Don't assume that just because you have membership in a New Testament church, that you have membership in Jesus Himself. This was the mistake of the people of God, as they were known in the Old Testament, saying, I'm a Jew, I live in Israel, therefore I'm good to go. I'm a receiver of the covenant promises. And they took this external membership in the community as what God was asking them to do, when in fact, He was looking for a people that had turned to Him inwardly. Yes, there's an outward expression of that, but he was looking to those that were looking to him inwardly. The idea that one could be a member of the people of God in merely external ways went up in flames in AD 70 in the burning of the city and the burning of the temple. Membership in the people of God is not, it's not a matter of external identification. It's a matter of internal transformation. It's about having a saving faith, a faith that, that saves and transforms. And the parable speaks of that as this wedding garment. So the, so the king goes in and he finds within the church some not wearing these wedding garments. Now, back in the culture of the day, the wedding garment is not maybe what we would think of. It, it was not some kind of like really nice clothes, really awesome thing that very few people could have, like, like a tuxedo or something like that. The wedding garment was, was, was available to anyone. It was simply, go get your clean clothes on. Whatever you've got, whatever, whatever your nicest clothes, your clean clothes, we used to call it our Sunday best, right? Whatever that is, get that on and come to the wedding feast. And that's juxtaposed to coming in from the field with a sweaty t-shirt and muddy boots, right? There's, a, there's a, an appropriate preparation to coming to a wedding, and to come into a wedding wearing your muddy boots straight from the field is an affront to the one that invited you. It's, it's dishonoring to the one whose wedding it is. And so Jesus speaks about those who would, who would kind of saunter into church among the people of God, but have no time for the transformation that the gospel brings 
in people's lives. That have no time for the, the, the inward work of God and are happy just to kind of show up and be there. Christmas and Easter, I'm, I'm there. But no account for the heart disposition. So this is a call for us to hide ourselves in Christ in a legitimate way. For some, it's a call to repentance and to looking to Christ, perhaps for the first time. For all of us, it's a call to continue to hide ourselves in Christ, that we be wearing the garments of salvation, that we wrap ourselves in and rely upon the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. This is not a call to earn your salvation. Right? This is not a call to kind of be good enough to make it. It's a call that every day we're looking to Jesus. And listen, if you're doing that, you will be transformed day by day. You might not see it for a while, but that's what the Lord is about doing. He's transforming us day by day by day. We confess that we are saved by faith alone. But we also confess that the faith that saves never comes alone. It transforms the believer over time. And this transformed believer with a genuine faith, that's, that's the wedding garment that believers in the church are wearing. I'm aware as I preach a passage like this, there are, there are two groups, roughly speaking, two groups that are responding and it's easy for both groups to miss it and to respond the wrong way. There are, and I, I suggest this is probably the bigger group in the church, there are those that hear these words and simply tremble at them because you know yourself too well. God have mercy on me. Could I be the one found without this garment on? Friend, let me just say, if, if you tremble at these words, if you tremble at the idea of God's judgment, if you, if you in that moment are repenting before the Lord and crying out, Jesus, you are my only hope. Friend, if that's you, you need not tremble at these words. For our God saves all who trust in him. So hide yourself in Jesus and don't worry about it. He's enough for you. He's enough for you. That's not what this is after. It's not, it's not after shaking your faith away from Jesus, but rather pushing you back into Christ and trusting him afresh. I think, especially those that grow up in the church, those that have been around a long time, we can grow sort of morbidly introspective. We keep coming back and looking at ourselves. Don't come back and look at yourself. Come back and look at Jesus and trust in him afresh again today. But there's another group, and this group would tend to hear these words and, eh, okay, whatever. No real concern. No real worry about it. I, I, I have concern for those who have no concern for themselves. For those that would not be concerned at these words, have no real love for God in your life, no love for others demonstrated in your life, then it is to you that these words are directed and these words are meant to bring you concern. And so, let me say generally to these two groups, let the fearful be comforted. And let the comfortable be dismayed at the idea of God's judgment coming. 
And let us all hide ourselves in Christ. So number one, our first application, hide ourselves in Christ. Number two, expect an imperfect church. Expect an imperfect church. This is such an honest picture of the church down for the last 200 years. You ever studied church history? It's kind of weird. It's kind of disappointing. You'd expect the church to be a little better than she often has been and often is now. You find in the church on earth the repenting and the rebelling side by side. Which means that if you were to spread out and look around in the world, you will find Christians, that is to say, genuine believers, in the Catholic Church. And you will find non-Christians there too. And if you went overseas, you will find believers in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Russian Orthodox Church, in the Greek Orthodox Church, in the Coptic Church, in all the other flavors of Orthodoxy. You will find believers there, and you will find those just going through the motions content to show up and go through the rituals. You will find in the U.S. today, in the mainline churches of the United States, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, people who genuinely wear the garments of salvation. And you will find those who do not. And so it will be among any group of churches, be it Presbyterian or Baptist or, yes, Sovereign Grace churches as well. You will find in really great churches, some wonderful Christians and some wonderful hypocrites in the same church. Now listen, I'm not saying, as I give you that broad brush of Christianity across the world today, I'm not saying all denominations are the same. Okay, I'm not saying all churches are the same. Some denominations are going off the rails and losing the gospel. Some churches are seeking to be faithful, get people to heaven. Others are listening more to the voice of the world than the voice of their God, and they are shepherding people to hell. All right? All churches are not the same. But I will say, in any genuine church, you will find a mixture of Christians and non-Christians coexisting side by side. So you probably should expect that at Mercy Hill. Probably should expect that here, that we're going to be an imperfect church. Don't, listen, if you're visiting, don't, don't come to Mercy Hill expecting to find perfection. And once you've been here a while, don't leave when you find imperfection. Of course, there's imperfection in any church upon earth. So this is a pretty honest look, I think, at the church over time and, and space, that it's, a, it's this imperfect church. But here's the thing. Um, they keep inviting people into this wedding hall. The servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, and so the wedding hall was filled with guests. It doesn't say, since the wedding hall was filled with bad and good, don't bother coming. It doesn't say, since the church isn't perfect yet, find God out there on your own. It says quite the opposite. Even though the wedding hall, this place of the gathering of God's people, the church itself is full of the bad and good, still invite people and still come. And so our next point of application, number three, is commit to a church. Commit to a church. Now I know I'm preaching to a group of people who are, for the most part, very committed to a local church. So let this be encouraging to you, both at your time at Mercy Hill and if the Lord ever leads you on, you be committed to a local church wherever he 
has you. But I find it interesting when the king came in verse 11 to look at the guests, when he came to the feast, there is one place he came to. And it's not the highways and byways where everybody was gathered from. It wasn't the old city of Jerusalem or the temple. He comes to the wedding hall. He comes to the church. Why? Because that's where his people are gathered. That's where his people are gathered. His people are in the wedding hall. True, there are unrepentant people in the wedding hall as well. But that is where his people are. They are not scattered out on the hillsides on their own. They are gathered together. This parable, friend, is meant to build a high view of the church in our minds. A high view of the importance of gathering together as believers. There's an interesting mixture here between individual Christianity, which we could, we could see pictured by wear the wedding garment. This is between you and Jesus to have a saving faith in him and the community that we are saved to be a part of, the, the church of God on earth, this, this communal sense of together we are God's people. This is building up that communal sense The church is, in fact, the only place where the feast is happening on earth. The only place where the Son of God is meeting with his people is in the church. And I think this is something we Protestants have really lost over the past 500 years. So let me give a little history of what I'm saying here. For 1,500 years, up until the Protestant Reformation, the church was very comfortable proclaiming that salvation was found in the church. Now, that's not to say it was through the church. Salvation is through Christ. That's been proclaimed by any true church throughout history. But Christ is only declared and made known by his people in the church. Salvation is found within the church, and outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, when the Reformation hit, it altered our view of the church, and we had to articulate why was it okay to break with Rome. And we needed to articulate that because it was okay to break with Rome. Rome, through the, the Pope, right, was, was said to be in charge of the entire church in the world. But Rome had lost the gospel, and so Luther and others rejected the Pope's authority over the entire church as well they should have. But friends, we have drifted from there in a way that I think is unhealthy. See, the Reformation rejected the Pope over the church, but the heirs of the Reformation are tempted to reject the church herself and to have a kind of Christianity that says, all I need is me and Jesus. I'm good. Give me me and Jesus and an occasional sermon on a podcast. I'm good to go. And that is not biblical Christianity as we see it. If such a thing exists, that is at best unbiblical Christianity. And one would have to wonder then if it is Christianity to talk about an individualistic kind of walk with the Lord. You know, churches today are just seen as temporary and we shop for them. And sure, they can be helpful for us at times, but they're not necessary. I want to I surprise you and startle you with some words from another 
era, words that come to us from our church fathers from, uh, boy, how long ago was this? 1,700 years? So about 250 years after Christ, this guy named Cyprian, Cyprian of Carthage, he says this, tell me how this sits with you. You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church for your mother. That grates on the Protestant ear, and that grates on the American ear, I think, as well. You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church for your mother. Okay. Let me tell you what they're not saying. They're not equating the church and God the Father as kind of next to each other in some mystical way. That's not what's going on here. Let's not misunderstand what's going on here. I think this quote is often thrown out out of a misunderstanding um, because from Cyprian's time, this was again quoted by Augustine and then over and over and over and over by innumerable saints down through the ages saying that the church is essentially the mother of the saints. And I think that is a beautiful picture, a good analogy for what the church is meant to be for each of us, what the church in fact is, whether we acknowledge it or not, for each of us who are believers. For the church really does give birth, in a sense, to every believer. We did not preach the gospel to ourselves. It was she, the church, who preached the gospel. It is the church who nurtures the believer. It is to the church that the Lord has entrusted his word and his gospel. It is the church that declares Christ. It is the church who administers baptism, which is the visible sign on earth that we are believers and that we have turned from our sins and placed our faith in Christ. It is the church who administers communion, the supper, where we gather at the feast to take part in communing with Jesus himself. It is the church together that grows up together into the head who is Christ Jesus. Friend, we don't get saved on our own. We don't grow strong in our own. We don't get discipled on our own. We don't get baptized on our own. God uses the church in each of our lives. That's the wedding feast pictured here. And we are called to be a part of the church of Christ. Called to the feast means we're called to a church. Okay, let's review real quick. We've got one more application point here. The first was that we hide ourselves in Christ, that we wear these garments of salvation. The second, that we expect an imperfect church. Third, that we commit to one anyway, as the Lord would have us do. And number four, finally, that we commune with Christ that we commune with Christ. So here's here's what's happening, right? This is a parable of a wedding feast where the king gave this feast on behalf of his son and he invites people in. He invites people in to commune with his son. Jesus is at the center of all of this. The whole reason for the feast is Jesus himself and, and his people gather that they may be near him, that they can commune with him that they can spend their time with him. He is the reason for all of it. Now, it's true, this wedding feast is experienced in a kind of impartial way on earth, but one day it's going to be fulfilled. 
one day we're going to be at the feast face to face with our Lord. What a day that will be. What a, what a wonderful hope and expectation we have as believers that we can look forward to that day. But the parable takes place both at that final judgment time and before it. These people are gathered right now at the wedding feast, which means we're called right now to be a celebrating church, a feasting church, a communing with Jesus church. That doesn't, we don't, we don't wait for that. until It gets better. But we don't wait for it. We hope for more, but we commune with him now. What does that mean? What does it mean to commune with Christ? What does it mean to gather and to, to know him? I want to suggest it has very little to do with your feelings. Very little to do with your feelings. Let me... Let me just say, don't measure your connection to Christ by your feelings. You'd be better off probably measuring your height by your feelings. I feel tall today, you know? But if you're a good friend of mine, you're going to come and, and give me the uh, more honest perspective. Ken, I know you feel tall today. Today's not your day for tall, okay? Okay. <laughs> Or I could wake up in the morning and, and feel like I just have some beautiful hair. Again, well, you know, can your, your feelings and reality, well, they're not close to each other. Faith is different from feelings. And faith is deeper than feelings. Now, sometimes feelings follow faith. And man, is that great when that happens. Sometimes feelings will follow faith and we'll have a, a sense of the Lord's presence, a sense of nearness to Him. We all desire that. But we do not commune with Christ by feelings. We commune with Christ by faith. That is how we commune with Christ. Turn off the measure of your feelings and look to Him in faith. I believe and have come to know that He has died for me. I believe and have come to know that his promises are true regardless of how I feel about them today. I believe that though I am a great sinner, he is a greater savior. We believe that when we are gathered, here he is in the midst of us. We believe that the Holy Spirit is at work when his word is proclaimed. We believe that as we gather around the communion table, our Lord is present with us in the room when we gather at that meal that he gave us. That table, the communion table, is a precious and holy place. It is the place where the people of God commune with the Son of God by faith. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. Communion has us looking in, if you will, three different directions. It reminds us of the feast that's coming. We're, 
we gather. <laughs> I love communion. I I'm not knocking it, but the, the little juice and the bread, it's not awesome. It's not. This is not a feast, <laughs> right? I mean, physically speaking, right? It reminds us that there's a feast coming. It is not the entirety, right? but it does remind us of that feast which is coming. There's an anticipation to it, a forward-looking. There's also a backward-looking nature to communion where we remember what Christ has done. We remember his body broken, and we remember his blood shed. But friends, what I want to highlight for you this morning and for us to together believe this morning is that when we gather for communion, we are reminded not just of the future and not just of the past. We are reminded of the present that Jesus is here with us. And that is indescribable. He is here. And I should stop talking. The Lord in our midst, who is holy and love, who is sovereign and who is good, is here. That's the feast. That's what communion is meant to remind us of. That's why this is a worship. We come together to worship the one who is among us.